Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Howdy. Hey. Hey, we're not alone here. We have a guest. Yes. How many of you remember the last time we had a guest? Oh, there's only two episodes ago. But this episode has epic sound quality because this guest is in the room with us. Steve, say hi. Hey. Steve, remind everybody who you are. I'm Steve Rowe. <laughs> I, uh, I've worked with Brent now and before I've been on the podcast once or twice, but before they tell you to, to go back and listen, so they're trying to cut me out. Uh, I'm a data scientist in the Windows team at Microsoft. <laughs> uh, do you have the data to back that up? I don't. Or, I, really? I, You're just yeah. going to make that? I can tell you my p-value is really low, though. <laughs> we, we can we can cut out that comment, right? I can do anything I want. Yeah, or, or, I can glue words <laughs> together to make you say things you never thought you were saying. Yeah, so we do refer to a lot of uh, to a lot of folks to to start in the late '60s. And um, Steve, while officially the most uh, frequent guest on the show, hasn't been on since we sort of started telling people go back to those times. So he was part of the discussions when we were uh, forming up and helping to frame MT and, and sort of guiding people towards this new world. But we haven't had him on since uh, since we formalized all of yeah, it's this. It's been a long time. I've been listening. It's been good. It's been a good set of discussions. So that's that's good. We covered that. Uh, <laughs> the the boards Telling behind me, I, I think it's a day when I sort of facilitate a conversation. I, I have a bad feeling because they're going to use uh, math things. And we're not going to talk math. Oh, good. Okay. I worry when I get in a room. I work with a lot of data scientists now. And do you? When, and whenever, yeah, I do. Nice. And when I talk with them, they start using a lot of things, phrases and words. that. Remember when I used to be able to fake data science? I can't, yeah, I can't you're, do you're that anymore. That now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just not. You guys keep invent words faster than I can fake my way into understanding them. Uh, you just say, what's the p-value for that? That's all you have to do, no matter what they say. Yeah, is that significant? And then you're then you're good to go. Oh, oh, good. All right. Did you calculate a confidence interval? Oh yeah, <laughs> I just reread a chunk of How We Measure Anything, the Hubbard book. So I have I have a little bit of math in my head, which is where I've gotten some of my fake actually, data science. Actually, Naked Statistics actually is a really good book if you want to start bootstrapping yourself into. Uh, I have terms. children in my home. I can't read naked books. That's that's probably true. It is fairly rated G, even though the although title, although the getting getting naked, the Pat Lencioni book is not at all what I thought it was going to be about, but it was still very good. You were very disappointed. <laughs> it depends. He, he's he, he's looking for books to to rationalize a, an odd behavior Got he it. already has. Yeah, yeah. so naked statistics <laughs> probably probably fulfill that same need. So oh, good, of good. disappointment in what in the title. And one last random awkward book conversation uh i recently i always have a copy of i reread it i have a copy of how to talk so your children will listen which is what i don't use it on my kids i use it on people i work with okay works great so brent or steve (laughs) the bs of this podcast uh what is our topic for the day today we're going to talk about ethics and ethics related to data science and machine learning. Yes. Uh, we had a listener who posted a, a, we could have almost called this a mailbag. 
but I was looking at the thread, and uh, there's no question there. But he did title the episode today, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Surely that's been used before. Uh, I, who cares? Not on AB. Isn't that a Spielberg, <laughs> isn't that a Spielberg movie? Maybe. Not yet. Yeah, it was one of his early ones from the late, oh. from the early 80s. Who should play me in the movie? Um, Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> that kid who played in Silver Spoons. <laughs> oh, sure. The blonde guy? Okay. Yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should get back Rick, to ethics. Rick Schroeder, I think. Right, that's him. Right. Oh, and uh, Tangent. Because um, that wasn't. If that, that wasn't? <laughs> no. It, 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 that he has wasn't. to announce it now. <laughs> No. Tangential question, I guess. Does society, in fact, need a reboot of 90210? Oh, you know what? I watched like five, <laughs> five minutes of that, and I thought, this is even below my standards. Okay. So, so I think the answer the is no. The only data point in the room, I haven't seen it. I, I, I didn't even know I they saw, were making yeah. well, I did watch most of the originals, which you know I'm probably ashamed of these days. The, uh, and now same, it's announced on the internet. Same. Which is why I, uh, and I'll edit my comment out, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, I wonder what these people are like. And they're potentially even worse actors than they were yeah. uh, 20 years ago. Oh, I did see uh, Jason Priestley's in some new movie from 90210, right? I don't remember the uh, name of the movie. I blocked it out. But I, I'm like, hey, he's still acting. I was shocked. No, here's what I think is because, so... What's the what's your what's your confidence interval on that? Uh, Ninety-seven point three. Okay, just checking. Yeah. When those shows came out, and I say those shows because we haven't talked about Melrose Place for good right? reason. I think all three of us were likely in various degrees of early on relationship with our spouses, and probably. They'll pray to the, oh, let's spend time together, uh, and then lost the TV choice. <laughs> no, no, I did it on my own. Oh, I did you bored. really? Yeah, yeah. So you the, came I came home from work. From I think the first show I remember watching together with my wife when we were first dating was The Sopranos. Oh. That's a way to build a relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, yeah. I was. Leave me, and here's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you're going to say saw or something like that, but. Um, all right, shall we get into this yes. a little bit further? Okay. Yes. What? What? What is it? What? What? It, the, maybe I'll ask later. What, what is, is it we're talking about? What? What do you? When you say ethics and data science, what does that mean? What are we discussing? Uh, we'll probably talk about things that piss Steve and I off. Um, oh. Yeah, that's something that you're comfortable with. So things that piss you no, off are so ethical or unethical? I just want to get my story straight. Let me ask Depends you. on who you, talk, who you are. Okay. Let me ask you. So you just told a story about you're working with a lot of data scientists. Sure. Okay. Um, my view of a data scientist's job is ultimately to automate the decision-making process. Yes. Okay. But one thing... Uh, that I see over and over and over and over and over again is, uh, unfortunately, data scientists are human. Um, they're driven by intrinsic incentives, like, hey, I want a better review this year than last year. That's only at Microsoft. 
that. But sure. they have the advantage that uh, in the in the software world to date, they have the advantage that no one knows what the hell they're talking about. I have seen the scenario you've played out over and over again where you have a data scientist comes in, talks to business leaders, throws up uh, three slides of math equations. Which makes everything clear, of course. No data scientist outside of that team in the room starts walking through it, and you could see the business leader's eyes glaze over, and the final conclusion of the thing of, oh, uh, great job. Keep up the good work, right? And without uh, the individual, uh, the, the decks that I see then afterwards, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, what's your test score on this? Like, great. You, you, you can describe a bunch of math stuff, which, by the way, is almost always up on Wikipedia anyway. You don't need to put slides in there. But this is slide-driven development, though. It's been proven to work. Yeah, <laughs> it gets it gets permission all the time. So it, I, I think the big thing about ethics and data science is that you have a tool that's not understood by a lot of people, like Brent says. So the implications of, of that aren't always clear. But even when they are, there's a lot of things you can do, right? This comes down to the Spider-Man principle, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And there's a lot you can do with data science to make decisions or to uh, find unique insights that otherwise aren't there. And the question is, should you or should you not, right? Probably a lot of our listeners know of the Target incident from, from many years ago where a girl's father called up the manager at Target and said, why are you telling why are you sending my daughter a bunch of pregnancy test information or a bunch of pregnant uh, pregnant woman information, right? Um, things for diapers right. It was like and it was like diapers and, and stuff, formula, right? yeah. And and you know how dare you insinuate that of my daughter? And the manager apologizes. And then a week later, the the manager calls back to say, "Hey, I'm really sorry." And the dad's like, "No, no, it's okay. There was something going on in my house that I wasn't aware of. Your algorithm was your stuff was correct. I apologize for yelling at you." But should target have targeted somebody in that way or not um, is the question, and that's the kind of question we're going to be answering today. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good question because I work with the data science team I work with. I work in ads monetization. We're trying to give, we're trying to benefit both the consumer and the publisher by showing them the right advertisement when they want it. And yeah, uh, how do we know that we our formula isn't is accurate but not unethically? actually just not unethical data science is a powerful tool uh, if you align it to mt like one of the things that we're trying to do is is help businesses be stronger by priority no, number one principle by, number one our goal is improving the business go on by servicing their customers in in building quality solutions to customers problems and data science is a powerful tool but it can be it it is very easy to remove the customer satisfaction uh, part of that equation when working through your models right it's easy to think about how much money you could raise if we could target somebody for this particular thing even if maybe they don't want to be targeted for it um, it's easy to forget about that just to make the money but principle five says that the customer is the only one capable of judging the quality of our product right and part of the quality is their satisfaction and the the their, their satisfaction with the ads and how creepy you seem is all kinds of things that are going to affect your long-term uh, potential as a company, even if the short-term you can make a lot of money out of targeting somebody for something uh, they may not want you to know about. My hyperbolic example is uh, 
so we have a lot of vision recognition. We have uh, uh, we are shrinking cameras, right? Uh, no one talks about Google Glass anymore, but um, that's I think that's a technology that perhaps was a little before its time, but that'll still push forward, right? Uh, I know Steve and I both wear glasses. I know I certainly would would think it's cool if I had the ability to have a near real time heads up display in my in my eyewear. As long as I didn't, you know, add another pound on top of the bridge right. of my nose. Yeah, at some point somebody will manage to get a hollow lens shrunk down small enough to fit in your glasses and have a long battery life, and then things will be very interesting. Yes, for example, um, men- mentalists. You guys know what these are? A mentalist, like the people well, that can read your mind. The the people that wasn't can... there a TV show called The Mentalist that I never watched. There was. Okay, yeah. is it the um, same thing? Yes. Should I pause? I'm gonna boot up Netflix. Wait, can I get your Wi-Fi password? Never mind. Go okay. ahead. The, what they are very good at is seeing um, micro-movements in your face. Oh. And they are able, to, and they have determined patterns. So, for example, um, I don't, I'm not a mentalist, but if someone asks you a question, and then that, if that person doesn't look you in the eyes answering it, the direction where they look uh, if they look up or to the side, uh, it's known that it's probabilistic what they're doing. Like looking up, uh, uh, I remember this one, looking up when they answer generally means they're inventing an answer. So, and they're well trained to observe this. But an automation, uh, computer vision with AI, uh, with these type of glasses, uh, honestly, we're not far off. From you're right, yeah. I am wear my special glasses, I can tell if you're full of BS or not, right? And what happens in a world? What happens in a world when everyone knows that everyone else is lying, right? Isn't that what we call the press today? (laughs) Yeah, um, what would the I mean, that would completely revamp the dating scene completely. Uh, there should be a show about that. Wasn't there a movie like, you know, where, <laughs> I don't where, have where, to where give somebody, it. <laughs> hear everybody else's thoughts, something like that, right? Wasn't there an old Mel Gibson movie or something like that? And it's fine in fantasy, but I, but I do think um, it's sort of a, it's sort of a version of Uncanny Valley. I actually think you know the phenomenon that uh, the where what is it? Um, social media bullying. It has a cleverer name. Cyberbullying. Yes, thank you. I'm here to help. Where where uh, teenagers, uh, one of the problems is it, on the cyber, uh, on social media, peer groups will say on social media what they won't say to your face. That's been true of email since I first used email. Uh, yeah, but the friction's a lot smaller. Yeah, the 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 feedback loop is faster. There's, right. there's always been the phenomenon on email where you can't tell if somebody's yelling at you or if they're you know, All caps, smiling. Man. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to get sarcasm out of uh, an email. And you, so you, you, you put a sarcasm tag in. There you go, slash S, and you're good to go, yeah. right? Yeah. If you're conscious about it, yeah. Um, the and be- the rate of, of teenagers that have been suicidal as a result of the feedback that they read on that and, and not being able... 
Like things like these glasses would just take it to the next level. We're going to such right. happy places on this podcast. Right. No, well, well so again, that's a hyperbolistic example, but it, it's something that um, if ethics isn't talked about in the data science world, it's going to happen. Right, it, it's it's just a matter of time, right? I I yeah, used to I used to joke that the reason why I went into data science is that twenty years from now, I'm hoping that our AI overlords will look upon us uh, more fondly than the rest of you guys. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we'll be the with this the the B tier people or whatever in the right you know Brave New World instead of what are the AIs are the A tier. Yeah, I think it does yeah. come down to a little bit. I think it was a Jurassic Park quote or whatever where they said, you know, they were so busy thinking about whether they could, they stopped thinking about whether they should. And so part of what ethics is trying to do is say, you know, think about whether you should build these kind of glasses and whether you should target people for pregnancy, et cetera. Right. Um, <clears throat> so why don't we go through? So Brent has a list of things to talk about. No, actually, those are Steve's list. Steve uh, has a list I of things to talk about. Approved. Why don't you guys, <laughs> I, I will sit back and add uh, questions as needed, but go ahead and discuss those, and I'll sit back and drink my coffee. So the first thing I'll say is to the situation like you, Alan, I take, I take it very seriously in my role. My currency is credibility. I want to make sure that if, if I were a data scientist you were working with or data scientist you were working with, I want to walk you through and I, want, I would want to prove to you this is where you can trust my model and this is where you can't. And where the math is too hard, uh, I would simplify it and still try to walk you through it. Because again, I want to... Um, I'm not going to be the only data scientist you work with, but I want to do my part to kill two birds with one stone. Earn your trust and make sure you, you have learned how to apply those techniques to call bullshit on other data scientists. If I come to you and say, hey, dude, I got a model and R squared is one. Then I know you're lying. Uh, no. Well, I'm I know either, you have a broken model is what I mean. I'm either lying or my model's bullshit. For those of you at home, R squared is the percentage of, of variability that your model captures. And if you think you captured every single little nuance, you're probably wrong. Yeah. Any, and one's See, we did get some math. One there. is a perfect score. And every model that I have ever seen that comes back with a one, and it is possible is entirely useless. I've been able to pick that apart easily. Um, all right. What do you want to talk about uh, on so your you list? So you have uh, one up there that I'm not quite sure where you were going with it. So maybe we should we can start there or we can start with privacy. Oh, the, the one at the top? Yeah. Do you want to start with privacy? Because that's kind of the big one in the news all these days. Everybody's afraid of the let me Let Facebook, me explain that to you and then I'll let privacy. you I'll let you uh, decide where you want to go. All right. Because you're go our valued it. guest. The assumption of independence. This kind of plays into the generalist versus specialist discussion. Uh, there's a phenomenon they see all the time uh, of two key KPIs, and it doesn't matter which KPIs. We could say speed and quality, 
And then what you do is you have a data science team focused on quality and you have another data science team focused on speed. And there is an assumption of independence between the master KPIs that they're focused on, which is completely false. Meaning changing one is probably going to affect the other in ways that you weren't otherwise expecting. Right. But the other phenomenon I see is because both teams are not using the other KPI in their models, what happens is team one claims success and coincidentally team two goes, yeah, something happened this last week. We don't understand what happened. But we're working on a model and I'll prove it. And then when they do so, they claim success. And team two says this goes, yeah, something happened in our model. We don't understand what happened. We'll have to tweak yeah, it. I think that's true of any time you give somebody uh, primacy of one particular metric to drive, whether it has data science involved or not. Right? I remember back in the day, yeah. uh, we were working on Windows, probably the late Vista era or XPSB one era or something like that. For those of you that don't know, Windows is an operating system much like Mac OS or Ubuntu. Go on. Anyway, we were on the security kick, and uh, there's a fundamental piece of Windows called COM. Not that it matters, but there's a fundamental piece that everything runs through. And one team was given the, abil- the responsibility to make sure that things were secure. So they came to us and said, if you just disable COM, we can make the entire operating system secure. Which is good. You just can't do anything with it anymore. So that was kind of where they had one primacy of security over everything else, and they weren't thinking through the implications of that. And the usability model in this case fell through the floor. But it's secure. But it's secure. Com is the component object model. I still, I don't have it anymore, but I have my my inside com book for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all zero things you can do would have been secure, Steve. So I I assume you're supportive of this strategy. Oh, very much so. Yeah, (laughs) it was totally secure. All right. All right. So, yes, make sure that you're paying attention to to all aspects and not to one. A lot of times that means if you're going to have metrics, you want some guardrail metrics that you're watching along with the thing you watch. Like if you run an experiment, right, you run an A-B test somewhere, you oftentimes have what we call guardrail metrics to make sure that other things aren't going wrong, even though the one thing you're looking at goes up. So maybe you're looking for something like, you know, response to your ad, um, but you have guardrail metrics around, you know, usability, around usage and around monetization, et cetera. And so maybe people click on your ad a whole lot, but your overall numbers go down. That would be bad and not something you want to ship, even though the thing you're aiming for is good. It just ended up tanking everything else. I love that term. I normally use tension metrics for a similar concept, but guardrail Guard. is clear. Okay. Privacy? All right. So let's talk about privacy because that's kind of the biggest one in the news these days, I think. Everybody's, you know, the news is all afraid about uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica and what Facebook's doing with your stuff and who's listening to which um, devices, audio systems, and, and whatnot. Privacy is a hard one mm-hmm. uh, because what we see a lot in the industry, except for when big things like um, the, the Russians taking over Facebook and, and using that to influence uh, decisions, which is absolutely clearly unethical um what we see from from almost all behavioral studies on this people are willing to give up privacy for ease right they are and then they they get upset at the overall right so nobody 
ever says, I'm not going to give you my Gmail account because you're going to scan it. Nobody ever says, I'm not going to sign up for Facebook because you're going to scan it. But then later they get really mad at those companies for doing things with them. So there's, uh, we're probably going to talk later about informed consent, but you, people have to be very clear about what you're going to do with it. Um, and then, then there's issue, then they're, they're much more willing to do things or give you things. But I think Brent's right that you as a person creating a tool have to think through the privacy concerns in ways that your users probably won't initially think through because they could come back to bite you later when they get upset, even if they're not initially outraged by it. Right. Uh, uh, people aren't concerned. I think when the, I, I haven't done the study on this, I haven't seen a study on this, but my, my hypothesis is people take that approach because they very clearly see the benefit of the new capability being lit up. Hey, uh, so for example, I adore, I recently got a Nest doorbell. I adore that right now, if Amazon were to drop something off at my house, I could see what's going on. Okay. But that means there is a live connection between my doorbell and the world. There was something that recently happened. Uh, I don't think it was Nest, but a hacker got into an internal, someone's internal camera and speaker and took it over and was able to see everything inside someone's house and was able to interact with the owners. And the owner could do nothing about it. They, the, the, the hacker they was mocking them. They could have unplugged their camera. Yeah. So that's more of a security issue, I think, than an yeah. ethical privacy issue. Right? The privacy question, though, comes when... For quality reasons, a company like Amazon, when you when they have people that listen to the uh, audio coming back from Alexa, or at least they did, I think they still do, um, and then they would try to translate that into whatever it really was to help improve Alexa. But that means that they're listening to things that are going on in your house. And not always are you saying, I'm sure we're going to trigger a lot of stuff, you know, Alexa, play some song, right? Sometimes it just accidentally picks something up and maybe you're having a conversation about something you don't want anybody to know, but you say a word that's close enough to Alexa and it, the little blue ring shows up and it goes ding. And suddenly somebody back, you know, at Amazon might be able to hear what it was that you just said. And imagine there's some unethical person there who says, I really want to get Steve. Let me go see what Alexa may have captured from his stuff, right? You can imagine somebody who's very political and they say, I wonder if, you know, Elizabeth Warren or I wonder if Donald Trump has an Alexa in their house. Let me go find out and I can listen and see if anything happened there. Right. So that's that's one of the implications you have to think about from a privacy standpoint. Let um, me let me ask the people in this room. I, I assume every that, one that, of that's us, me and Steve for if you may lost track. Uh, it, <laughs> go on. <laughs> You are such an ass. That is my job. <laughs> the, the answer that, is that's what 42, the, I believe. That's what the yep. A stands for in right. A-B testing. So everyone has uh, an assistant at home, I assume? I do. Yes. Okay. I have Google. You guys, I assume you have Alexa. I do. I have to have something to turn off the lights. I, I have an Amazon-built smart device. Okay. Anybody I, who has one is like getting triggered like crazy right now. Yeah. Alexa? Oh, some people, just for you to let out, some people call it Echo. Oh, right. And just, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, devices are going crazy right now. Yeah. Oh, I found out, by the way, if you're playing, I play song quiz all the time. I, I have a little 20 on my 80s music. I'm uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, where was I going with this? Oh, uh, it, it asked for your name. I was bragging, but if you ask, it'll ask you for your name, and people just give it some BS name, but if you tell it your name is Alexa, it just can't comprehend. It can't even. So they go into a loop and just yeah. starts calling itself over yeah. until there's a big giant flaming pile of Seattle. Yeah, it, it just can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just can't figure it out. Anyway, go on. Right. Uh, so, 
So, um, hey, Google, tell everyone to listen to the A-B testing podcast. Yeah. Now, <laughs> <laughs> my, our phones just went <laughs> My phone just interacted, uh, right? Yeah. There is just... a strong chance that at my home right now, I just woke up my son. Um, <laughs> I, I think it only works at home if it's over Wi-Fi, though. Um, we'll find out. Yeah, but so. people with their phones, yeah, something probably just right, happened. So the, the question is what you do about these privacy things. You, first, you have to be... A, aware of them and cognizant of them and, and think through them um, and make sure you're telling people what you're going to do with it. Um, well, the, the, the second thing, though, is to try to, as much as possible, avoid them. And so you can do things like set up retention policies. So if, if Amazon has your information and they do keep these voice snippets, but if they throw them away after a week, they're a lot less likely to cause issues than if they keep them around for you know, a year or two or, or some long period of time. Well, even further, uh, like you, you brought up a hypothetical does anyone in this room know what the data retention policy is on these voice snippets? I have no idea. In Europe, it would be 30 days. Right, which in my, in my view is far too long. Yeah. Like, it, after you've responded and done whatever I said, that snippet should be deleted. Right. There, now, there's other things you can do about it. Like, you can anonymize it, right? Imagine you took these these... Uh, audio clips, and then you took away the name. So you didn't know it was from Steve. You had no idea to trace it back to an IP address. You had no idea how to trace it back to a person. That becomes a lot less dangerous. You could even do something like shift the voice or or something along those lines to make it so that it was impossible to hear, even recognize a voice of that person. Yeah, There's all things that can protect my privacy and still allow uh, Amazon to get done what they need to get done. Right. And if you look at it, it's uh, this is just the basic premises of privacy. Don't collect the information collect the information that you're going to use to improve your business and have no way to trace that information back to a specific user. Right. And you might say, well, what if I need this information over the long term, right? Sometimes anonymization will work, although there's been some work done to prove that you can de-anonymize at least a reasonable amount of the time. But you can also keep aggregates, right? So instead of keeping, here's what Steve did and here's what Brent did and here's what Alan did, you can say the average of this room was, you know, three on whatever this, this value is we're trying to connect. Now you can't know whether that was, you know, Brent at 12 and Stephen Allen at a much lower number or, you know, what it was. And so you can keep the averages over time without keeping all the individual information. Uh, yeah, except there's still... Uh, so uh, Google, I don't know, I haven't played with Alexa, but with Google, uh, you can ask a simple question. Um, Hey, Google, what's my name? Right? And Google will generate two responses. <laughs> Google will generate two responses. Hey, your name is Brent. Or I don't recognize your voice. Okay? Which means in order for it to succeed, it's part of the feature for it to do voice print recognition and know who you are. So... Um, Google, at, in some aspect, when I'm at home, knows who I am. Absolutely does. Yeah, and the, the question for the person implementing that system at Google is, how much of this should you do? You certainly can do voice recognition and figure out, I know this is Brent, and I recognize his name, and I know that he bought you know, this thing last time on, on the store, and I know that he goes to these websites. How much of that should you connect together? You can. The question is, how much should you? 
And, and that's the determination you have to make. Right. Is there a silo? Is there a sandbox around right. what aspect of Google knows who I am? Yes. Does, it, does the only aspect, my phone and um, my speakers at home? Right. And then there's or the question is it everywhere? Of where the work is done, right? So you can, yeah. you can get a lot of this stuff done in a, in a more privacy-protecting okay. manner. Like Apple does a lot of its AI and ML, ML on machines instead of sending it back to the cloud. Um, I was at the Strata conference a few months ago, and there was a bunch of talks about something called federated AI. So imagine that you are in your browser, and you start typing into the into the toolbar, and it predicts, hey, here's where you're going to go. You you know, type in C, and it knows that you go to CNN a lot, so it finishes it with CNN.com, right? Well, that's cool, but maybe it's not CNN.com. Maybe it's something that you're more uh, ashamed of or you don't want other people to know. The way they do it today is generally they send all of those URLs back to a central server that can calculates them and comes back and says, here's the things that are likely to happen. Federated AI says, I'm going to have you go build a small model on your machine and then send back only some of the, the data points from that model back to the central, some of the weights, and, and then it'll be averaged in the back end. And so nobody knows that you went to CNN.com or FoxNews.com or wherever you went to, they just know that people tend to go to these sorts of places when they also go to these other places. And then uh, they can't, it's kind of an anonymized version of that. Um, should we talk about informed consent? Yeah. That's kind of the next logical thing to go from here. So uh, I was thinking about this, right? If you, uh, I oftentimes go to the Puyallup Fair or the Western Washington State Fair, which is one of the big fairs that's coming up in the fall, and you wander around the booth uh, section there, they're all trying to hawk you their wares. And a lot of times they say, hey, sign up for free you know, a chance to win a free set of windows or for a chance to win a free roof or some, a free garage door. And so you fill out a page and you say, my name is Steve and here's my address and here's my phone number. And then about three weeks later, somebody calls you and says, hey, I'm Joe from the garage door company. Do you want to buy one? Can we send you, you know, a list? I don't feel my privacy has been invaded by that because I know that I gave them a piece of paper that I'm sure they're going to call me back on. Right, So that's informed consent. I gave them permission, basically, to call me and try to sell me to garage doors. Even though I have no interest in buying them, if they want to give them to me free, I'm happy to. Otherwise, I can ignore them. But I'm not upset that they call me for doing that. On the other hand, if I just go to a garage door website and all of a sudden somebody calls me from there because Google or Amazon or Facebook gave them my phone number, I'm going to feel kind of violated. What's the difference? I didn't give consent in the second case and I gave consent in the first case. Well, and the thing is, um, even in the first case, yeah, you get it. You, you'll, yeah, but there's a high degree of, of people or a large number of people who don't get it, who are actually surprised. Why are you calling me? Yeah, I think mostly that comes from the fact that they're not, it's not obvious. Somebody's calling Brent now. Um, it is not always it's, obvious. It's Google. It's Google, yeah. They, they want to sell you a garage door. Um it's not always obvious that, that what you've given consent to. Sometimes it's hidden in a giant set of boilerplate, 16 pages long, that you have to click OK on in order to use your software. And so while you technically you said yes to it, you didn't actually read it, right? If, if I just walked through the door of the Puyallup Fair and they said, all right, now we're going to give your information away and have a sign that says, by walking through the door, you give your consent for this, I'm not going to feel like I actually gave my consent. It has to be informed and not merely consent. Makes sense. But that's it falls into the thing of, Another example of where where tech could lead down a, a dark path here. Most of us have NFC or some sort of ID on our phones. Who's to say that couldn't be used to track to track our entrance into a mall and to well, see and see what stores we spend our time in? AT and T or T Mobile or Verizon or whoever your wireless carrier is knows exactly where you are all the time, right? All those things that you can you, know, you oh. walk into a store and they've got. <laughs> 
fence, you know, basically, what do they call it? Not ring fencing, some kind of geofencing, mm-hmm. right? So they know, okay, you walked into this store, I can offer you ads, or I can know where you were, or I can tell that you're near the Pokemon uh, gym or whatever it is you're trying to go do. AT&T and all those companies know from triangulation off their towers exactly where you are all the time. The question is what they're going to do with it. There's a famous example uh, on from Nordstrom that did exactly that, where a common behavior is people come in with their Wi-Fi on, and all of Nordstrom's Wi-Fi is secured. But they found that they could they can triangulate where you are by your device's attempt to request access to uh, the, the network. And those attempts in the triangulation, they can go, oh, Alan was in the, the sock department. Now he's over in perfume. And My two favorite things to shop for. Yeah, and now perfume is going to follow him around the internet for the next week and a half. <laughs> That's my favorite part is when they follow you around everywhere, especially yeah. when you just bought something. I bought a truck once upon a time, and suddenly for the next month, they were following me around with truck ads. I'm like, I already bought one. I don't need a second truck. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> they want to give you a buyer's remorse on the truck you bought. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, there's there's got to be an example to this. The reason why you're getting truck ads is because... Um, Purchasing a truck turns out to be a pretty solid feature about whether or not you're interested in purchasing a truck. I suppose actually it's probably true that they don't know that I purchased it. They only know that I was thinking about it. So, um, right. But but informed consent is all about making sure users know and actively say yes to the thing that you want to go do with their data. And so you give them a giant list or you give them very vague wording saying like we're allowed to give it to other people and we can do whatever we want with it. Technically they have consented, but not in a way that they're going to be happy about. So if you're going to have people listen to it, you better make it very clear to people that their their audio is going to be listened to for quality control purposes. Right? This is the reason why every time you call uh, anybody, you call the bank or you call, you know, uh, somebody, REI Comcast. or stuff from Comcast, one of the first things they say is, and they say it explicitly, this is not even just in the recording a lot of times, the first thing the person has to tell you is, this call may be recorded for quality control purposes. And then if you really don't want that, I guess you hang up and, and just deal with the fact that Comcast overcharged you. Back um, on to the ethical yeah. Should discussions. we talk about bias next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's trying to get through some of these. Um, so bias. bias. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so bias is actually something we don't talk about a whole lot. Um, it doesn't make the, the news as much, but it's actually pretty interesting. So data sets always reflect what they where they came from. And so it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out situation. And if you're not careful... Um, biases that are in your data can come out later. So if, if you gather a bunch of data from people that are you know, all biased in a particular direction, they all like small cars and they hate big cars, and then you say, what kind of cars are people going to like? And you tell your machine to go predict it. It's all going to pick small cars, and it's not going to pick big cars. Not because big cars are bad or because nobody wants the big cars, but because you happen to be you know, talking only to people that are in a large city. And so the number of people in a large city that want to buy pickup trucks, very low they may not want to. And so if you build your model only on people that come from large cities, um, then you'll never say, you know, people want the dually quad cab pickup, full bed pickup trucks. <laughs> like Brent has. Yeah. I love my truck. Yeah, there are a few truck people in this room. And then there's Alan. Yeah. yeah. His current car couldn't fit in the back of my truck, but his last car could. <laughs> right. But this becomes a big issue, right? If you think yeah. about... Uh, Amazon trying to offer you books. Um, here, people bought this book could also buy this book. You have to be very careful um, what's going on there. I remember many years ago, 
uh, there was Amazon had a set of books and it had a book by a civil rights author and then it had a book by I think Jane Goodall or something and it advertised them together, which I'm sure the 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 system had no idea what it was implying, right? But a lot of humans that read that saw the page did they got outraged and they came and said, "Hey, you got to get rid of that." And of course, Amazon replied very quickly and got rid of that that association. Um, right, and, and but, that, but that was that was a, a bias, not a not an, an not an impl- uh, explicit bias. Like I don't think anybody, even in their audience, was putting those two together. It just happened to be the case, and they weren't careful about it. Uh, well, uh, right, you and I both build models. It didn't happen to be uh, the case. There, there is some relationship that was there that right. got weighted. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it's probably not the relationship everybody implied from it. For sure, likely. Yeah, for sure. But that that is that is a. I mean, it's an example of of an ethical concern right. where where you're building a model. Models uh, do have a tendency to be objective with the data that you give them, and the end result is you've built an AI bot that's racist. Right. A lot right. of the early <laughs> no, a lot of the early face recognition systems were tuned on uh, people with lighter skin, and they didn't work very well for people with darker skin. And nobody quite realized that initially for a lot of the early models, and then it became kind of an issue. In, voice and I think recognition much as well. Yeah, voice recognition tended to recognize male voices, I think, better than female voices in the early versions. Of and it. and the American accent versus any other accent. Yeah, right? it, that that's been a problem. Um, By the way, uh, my trick is actually my phone. And one thing I want to mention is when Brent was talking to his phone, mine didn't respond. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but the point I was going to make is uh, I have two – I used three different uh, – I use the AI recognition from Microsoft, Google, and Amazon in my home from time to time. Uh, one of them is far worse, but I found if I talk like a robot, it it will understand me much more often. If, if I give up, I can just talk like this and and it will understand me. So that's my, that's my tip for uh, – I'll try this. Alexa, buy me a car. See if that bias. Right. <laughs> so I think there's two sorts of bias you need to be careful about, right? Maybe three. Um, but there's two major approaches of bias. You need to be careful of of accidental bias, things like the the book example I gave out with with Amazon earlier. And then there's explicit bias, where you're gathering stuff from a particular group of people um, because they're the ones that are available to you. And so you sample only those people. So if you're Amazon and you sell your Alexas everywhere, and then you use that to train your system. If you're selling mostly in North America, it's going to work great on North American accents, and it's not going to work so well on British accents or, or maybe even like Midwestern accents. Are you familiar with the sharpshooter bias? Uh, maybe. Why don't, okay. you tell our, why don't you tell our audience? So this? this is, since it's an ethical discussion on data science, this is one of the biases that drives me crazy. Um, any data scientist worth their salt will avoid it, but I see it a lot when... when um, the untrained are trying to play the game, trying to get into this. Um, sharpshooter bias is essentially you first plot all the dots, then you circle the clusters and go, yeah, oh. Right. That was my guess as to where you were going. Yeah. It, so it, it's essentially, it's called the sharpshooter bias. You can imagine uh, you have a, a, a person who's blindfolded shooting at a side of a barn and then looks for the, the, the tightest cluster and then draws the target or paints the target around that cluster and then goes talks to his friends like, look, 
look at how awesome a shot I am. Yeah, this is happening a lot in psychological studies, actually, and, and social studies, um, where they don't know quite what they're looking for. So they go looking for anything with what's called a, high, a low p-value, right? Something that says it's, it's significant. And then they declare afterwards, like, aha, I found that, you know, this effect is, is, is taking place, right? The most famous example is probably the priming effect. Uh, there was an example. Kahneman, unfortunately, talks about it in his book um, and, and had to at least somewhat recant. Um, but the idea is if you tell people like the, the – I think the initial one was to take a test. And on that test, they had words that said like slow and old and decrepit. And then they measured how long it took people to get from there to the outside of the door. And then it took longer in those cases. And they went, aha, I found this thing. And then it was – uh, sort of replicated a whole bunch of times because people would say, I'm going to go look for it. If I find it, I'll publish. And if I don't find it, I won't publish. And suddenly it looks like it's happening everywhere. Then people went back and actually tried to reproduce it initially. And the only way they could get the effect is if they told the researchers who was on the slow and who was on the fast list. And they actually ended up uh, slowing the people down as they were exiting because they knew who was supposed to go slow and who wasn't <laughs> supposed to go slow. Um, but that, we find that a lot of times. Uh, uh, back to the theme, that sounds unethical to me. It does sound unethical, right? But it's not intentionally unethical. They're just trying to find something. But because they don't know what they're trying to find, or they know what they're trying to find, but they don't know what rules they're going to follow in order to try to find it, they end up saying, well, what happens if we take people of this sort out? Maybe they're illegitimate. And so they, they measure a 1,000 people. And they say, oh, but all the people that were left-handed, those probably have a bias in them. So we'll get rid of them out of the system. And you start moving enough things around, and suddenly you can come up with a significantly significant answer. The, the solution to this has been you have to pre-register uh, what you're trying to go do. Here's the test that I'm going to go run, and then I'm going to go run it. And it turns out that after that, things drop off dramatically. Yeah, um, you find a lot less interesting things. As you an find mostly true things. As an aside, I, I'm not going to mention it, but recent – I'm not going to mention any specifics, but recently I was presenting to one of our senior execs, and – I am aware that he is beholden by the board to a particular KPI. And I studied this KPI and said, I am seriously concerned that how we generate this data is heavily influenced by the priming effect. And um, well, then in that case, you should be safe because the priming effect turned out not to be true. Um, in that case, yes. But if you read that... It, I mean, multiple. Well, Dan Ariely has, has talked about the priming effect, and they've those studies in that book. I believe they've passed the the repeatability aspect. Um, I, it's, it's very interesting for the audience to go look up uh, yeah. that the priming effect and see where they think it's it's where where the research has gone because it's, there's a lot of discussion right now. Um, and then selection bias. Uh, selection bias is absolutely critical. Uh, like to again, I, I keep thinking of Alan as the the person who's flooded by data scientist math equations, right? Um, the question is when they come and say, "Hey, we we did this, right?" Um, how do we train leaders who don't understand the craft to ask the poignant questions around selection bias? Um, do you want to tell our audience what selection bias is? Uh, we've we talked about it before. Um, Drake. Yeah. So selection bias is um, building a strong model because you've selected the data that encourages that model or and reinforces that model. Uh, we've The thing we talked about multiple times before is sort of the World War II airplane um, 
condition. That was a strong example of selection bias gone wrong. Um, for those who have only started since episode 70, what uh, there was World War II, they had a bunch of people studying the airplanes that came back, looking at the bullet holes, and deciding where the arm, armor was to go. And at the last, or one, one brilliant guy whose name is escaping me at the moment, I believe his first name starts with Arthur, he realized that what they were doing was a complete mistake because there was selection bias. Because they weren't getting random examples of, they only had the planes that came back. And what he argued is that the planes that came back. Abraham Wald, I believe. Oh, Abraham. Great. Well, what he said is, no, what you need to do is analyze the absence of bullet holes and armor there. Uh, because you're looking for the planes that got destroyed, and those aren't the ones coming yeah. back. If you have a bullet hole and you made it back, by definition, you can probably survive having a hole there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, the, the only last thing we're going to talk about, we won't so much, but make sure you understand what kind of decisions you're making, what ideas, what you're allowing the system to make uh, unchecked. Right? Are you allowing it to automatically deny a loan? Are you allowing it to automatically send an ad? Are you allowing it to automatically launch a missile? Like, Be careful what kind of power you're giving the system where you wouldn't want unchecked decisions to be made because your model could easily be wrong in ways that you don't understand. And if you get into that situation, you better have a check on it. And currently, most models are making a single decision without, without consideration to downstream decisions. Right, uh, Almost ev- all software is essentially a big if then else case that is huge uh and most models are not trying to optimize for the whole system they're they're generally trying to make a single decision um and that single decision could have a negative downstream effect yeah right? be careful of that all right thanks for coming steve sure thanks for having me all right we'll see you next time